Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. Before we get started with the podcast this week, if you want to get 15% off your surfing and outdoor gear, look no further. Go to Northcore on the internet and use the code capital letters GRUMPYSURFER15 to receive 15% off your purchase. Also, the WaveKey guys, i.e. Brad Gerlach, has given me a 10% code to use until the 1st of July. Use the code WaveKey Grump to receive 10% off your subscription for your WaveKey technique. On the podcast today, I have a guy that's been in the surfing industry for over 20 years designing wetsuits. He's also the creative director for Talk Surfboards. The reason why he's on the podcast today is he's been in collaboration with the Green Overhead guys and has developed the new Dekine wetsuit that has only recently just come out and has sold out of all major surf shops in this country. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Phil Bridges. Phil Bridges, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. Thanks for having me. A couple of questions. I've already asked the first one. So the second one is, have you been surfing today and where are we? Uh... Joe, I haven't been surfing today. If I'd, if I'd known, I would have gone for a surf. I feel like I failed the first test. Um, I haven't. I did have a nice little surf yesterday at lunchtime, but today's a bit, um, it's, not, it's not so good. Um, we are in my office, which is in Braunton, around the back of Tesco's, above a photo studio, um, where I do all my design work. Got a rack of wetsuits behind me and a shelf of assorted samples and paraphernalia, and some hipster lights and a designery chair on the, in the corner. Beautiful. So one of the reasons I've asked you to come on the podcast is that you are a wetsuit designer uh, and you've also been developing the Dekine wetsuits, which we'll come on to later on in the podcast. But you've also done things for Tiki and a few other brands as well. Before we go into that, let's talk a little bit about your background. So, you know, where did you grow up and how did you get into surfing and developing all of this? Um, it's always a tricky question, that one, because I, I didn't really grow up anywhere in particular. I grew up all over. My dad was a, uh, an army officer, so I was, um, you know, sort of typical army brat, moved around the world a lot. I was, in, I was born in Australia. Not that I don't think that has any bearing on being a surfer. I think that would be too big a coincidence. Um, I lived in Hong Kong, Australia, Gibraltar, Holland, uh, all over the UK. Um, so that didn't really have any, if you know, bearing on getting into surfing. I just, I don't remember. I remember I was quite young and I remember seeing it maybe in a magazine and maybe on TV and, and just thinking it looked really cool and looked like something I wanted to have a go at. I had done a fair bit of sort of water-based stuff, you know, sailing and whatever. And, um, surfing just looked a little bit more fun, a little bit more appealing than that. So how did you get into designing? Did you, did you go to school and you, you know, you do... It sounds really weird. You were, you were good at art, and it was a, just a direction you wanted to go in. It's, that's pretty much exactly it. Yeah, I was good at art at school. I liked doing art. Um, it kind of, I sort of found my way through trial and error. Really, I mean, it's like you say, if you're good at art at school, it's you kind of you don't just want to go and be an artist. Or I mean, some people do want to go and be artists, but um, it's not the, the easiest career path. And so I kind of. I did art, I did A-levels, uh, I went and did a foundation year at uni, I actually started doing photography initially, uh, that wasn't really for me, and the course next door was a graphic design course, so I jumped over to that uh, halfway through this first year, 
and at the same time I was going surfing a lot I was up at Manchester so we were going to North Wales we were going across to the Yorkshire side as well Scarborough and those places and um, I kind of I mean obviously you know naively I think probably thought wouldn't it be great to combine the two do design and and surf and I, I, that's what I did really I mean I sort of maybe if I'd had any advice at the time it would have been against doing that because it wasn't the easiest business to get into or, or the most obvious as a as a sort of someone from the UK but uh, yeah so I finished my design degree uh, went off scooter around the world went surfing went to Australia went to Brazil a few other places and came back home jobless moneyless but I did have a design degree and I did kind of have an idea of what I wanted to do and so I just uh, contacted every surf mag company possible job related to design and surfing that I could in the UK and very fortunately um, got a contact back from Tim at Tiki and he said he was looking for someone invited me down to uh, come and have a job interview and lucked into a pretty nice job actually. So what were you doing with, at Tiki when you first joined with them? So um, Tiki's quite a small team there's only really one designer there uh, the guy that was there before me, he was an Aussie guy who'd worked at Rip Curl before that. He had a two-year work visa that was expiring, so he was flying back home. And so I took over from him, and it was essentially, it was all of the design for the brand. So from, um, you know, from simple as doing logos on compliment slips, right as much as doing um, wetsuit specifications, uh, logo positioning on boards, catalogues, brochures, web front-end stuff. This is well before social media times uh, makes me feel quite old saying that but um, yeah essentially I mean I used to say anything with a Tiki logo on it would have been something that I designed. So you did all the logo design were you designing wetsuits at the time or was that was clothing something that came along a little bit later on? No so I went straight in on wetsuits products board bags everything so it was properly I <laughs> I don't know if I just aced the interview and made it seem like I had more experience than I had or that it was simply a case that there just aren't many wetsuit designers and they just take a designer and train you up on the job, So, or maybe a bit of both. Um, and like I say, because I was the only designer there, the, it fell to me straight away to put the specifications together. So, I mean, I wouldn't like to claim it exclusively. Obviously, there's a, there's a huge amount of experience in that building. It's incredible. So, Rob... Uh, Rob Legg, who works there, he's been there, geez, 35, 40 years maybe, from back in the day when they used to actually make the suits at Tiki. So he is incredibly experienced at, you know, literally hand-making wetsuits, not just designing them like I do, but actually cutting out panels, gluing them together, stitching them together, making up a, a 3D suit from a flat piece of neoprene. So from the kind of pattern-cutting side of things, Rob was there to take care of that, and I learned a lot from him. And then specification-wise... Yeah, I just sort of learnt it as I went along. So you work with the manufacturers, you kind of, you know, you get your samples and your material swatches and uh, worked with Rob, worked with obviously Tim, the boss man. And the sales team, Stu, came on board not long after I started there. So sort of between us and Kraus as well in the shop with a lot of feedback on, the, you know, from what everyone else was doing that was selling well in the shop. Um, just kind of muddled through and, and kind of learnt, learnt the ropes by doing the job. Had you had, had you had much experience with clothing design before, like while you're going through your degree? Was it just something you kind of learnt on the job? Uh, it was something I learnt on the job. And clothing design, I would still say that I've, I've not really any kind of skill for. I, I steer quite clear of apparel. Um, I do all of the design that work that I do, and for all the brands that I work for, they're all hardware brands. So there's something that 
I find a lot easier to work with design is, is when you've got a kind of a criteria to hit. So, you know, a surfboard has to do a certain thing, a wetsuit has to do a certain thing, and you can actually measure whether it's a good design or a bad design based on those criteria. So I stick to, to hardware design. Um, clothing, I had no experience and I don't really have any experience now. That's kind of a bit of a dark art for me, you know, where it becomes more about sort of fashion and look and feel and that sort of stuff. That's um, So, no, that's not something I had experience with. Wetsuit design, I really didn't have much experience with either, only through design, and you learn kind of various sort of design principles and approaches and creative practices, and then obviously using wetsuits. I'd been using them with surfing for about 10 years at that point, so um, I had my own experience of using wetsuits, like anyone else, really. And like I say, I had a good team around me that showed me what to do, really. So talking about, you, you mentioned there about the materials. Mm. Being a surfer yourself, you're obviously aware of neoprene and the properties that are involved with a wetsuit to keep you warm, especially in this country with the cold weather. Was it something that you went away and tested? You know, the, I'm talking more about the developmental sides of, of the wetsuits now. So d did you go away and explore the different the different types of um, material there are to keep you warm and or did you do a little bit of market research, which is something that I'd probably do, and you know, get lots of different wetsuits from the main brands and look at the way that how it feels, how it fits, and all that sort of thing, and and kind of do it from there. Yeah, it's a mixture of everything, really. The exactly what you said. You, you obviously you look at what everyone's doing and why they're doing it. Um, there's obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of influences in wetsuit design. So, I mean, first and foremost, it's got to fit, it's got to have a nice pattern, it's got to have nice materials, it's got to keep you warm, it's got to stretch. But there's a lot of other things that come in, like, you know, your neoprene yield. So the pattern, first and foremost, wants to fit well. But the pattern that fits best would be, have a lot of curve in it, have a lot of pieces in it, which wouldn't be very good for neoprene yield. So you've got to straighten out some of the lines. You, you can really see it when you look at the offerings that manufacturers or brands have, is the, the more price point stuff will be very rectilinear, so the panels will all be kind of rectangle shaped, and that's going to give you your best yield on a neoprene sheet. Um, and then the higher end stuff, you've got a lot more curve, and it's poor on the yield, but it's better on the fit. Um, so you're always looking at what other people are doing and why they're doing it, and then you're looking at your own criteria so you need a price point you know you've always got to hit a certain price at the end of the day you're selling a product so you're always going to try and hit a price so that does lead you to some extent you've got the manufacturers you know what's available to you that's always going to be an issue so there are a number of different manufacturers and they offer a number of different neoprenes so to some extent that will either limit or in enhance the offering that you can do and it's a case of just taking everything on on you know that's given to you whether it's sales feedback on pricing positioning innovations uh, what the customer's looking for you know it's not always particularly when we're working at tiki we had a fairly uh, clear customer base and and it wasn't the guys who go and buy rip curl flash bombs because they'll go and buy a rip curl flash bomb tiki could do a rip curl flash bomb imitation all day long but they wouldn't sell them to those guys because they're going to buy the rip curl because that's what they want so we knew who our customer was, um, we knew what we had available to us, and that was the wetsuit we designed, really. So you kind of, you end up just writing your own brief based on your understanding of the market, the products, the materials, and so on. There's just all the different factors kind of drawing them all together.
Well, when you started going down that little rabbit hole now with materials and construction <laughs> and stuff, so we might as well carry on going with that. So I'm going to throw a bunch of questions at you. Okay. So first of all, best type of stitching for a wetsuit. Why are the, what are the best materials to, to produce the wetsuit, especially for the warmth? Uh, the trouble with wetsuit design is it's always so multifaceted. So to answer best stitching, it's not as simple as just saying, yeah, of course it's blind stitch. For, for cold water wetsuits, yeah, of course it's blind stitch. That goes without saying. Um, you've got single lock and double lock blind stitch as well to bear in mind. So if you're doing it exclusively on the outside uh, without a liquid seal or anything else on there, then you go double lock blind stitch, um, potentially taping the inside depending on the cost. If you're going for a liquid seal, you can just glue it and tape the inside. You might want to do a single lock blind stitch and tape the inside as well if you want to go belt and braces. That's what we do with the kind suits. So for cold water, blind stitch, definitely, as long as you're the gluing is good. You've got to actually you've got to glue twice. So you prime it with the glue, and then you let that go off, and then you um, glue it again. Just pull this a bit closer to you. And you glue it again, and then you um, butt the seam together. So you've got to see so blind stitch is great as long as the, the gluing is good. You've got to remember it's glued and blind stitch. Um, I mean, flat lock is is a good stitching system, and we forget that because we live in a cold country. But in Australia, we get asked for the super high end premium stretchy in flat lock, and I think, like, geez, you know, flat lock supermarket suits—that's what people buy in the summer for their kids, surely. But not at all. I mean, it's a super good. It's relatively inexpensive to produce compared to blind stitching, so it makes a it more marketable product. Like I say, that's always a big criteria, and uh, it's comfortable. It's flat. It's incredibly long lasting. It's much stronger than blind stitching. And if you live in a warm country, it's a no-brainer. So best is always a kind of comes with the second question of best, for, you know, for what? But yeah, you, if, as you said, cold water, then yeah, blind stitch. So material-wise, from, from my perspective, you just talked about, touched on it there a little bit. You've got sort of like your lower end material that you would probably get in a shop that sells polystyrene boards. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, the wetsuits are relatively cheap all the way up to what I would probably call a high-end suit, like Patagonia, for instance, where they retail at between, you know, anywhere between three and six hundred pounds for, a, you know, for a winter wetsuit. So why, why is there such a, a big significant difference in that? I mean, I, I'm kind of answering my own question because I know it, but, you know, why is there a significant difference between, you know, the one that you would get in that shop to a Patagonia wetsuit and... And, and what are the you know the fundamental differences in that too? Primarily, it's materials. So the, the bulk of the cost is the material of the wetsuit. Um, you've got a number, and there's a number of parts to a wetsuit as well. So you've got to you've got to um, bear that in mind. So incrementally, it kind of it adds up. So it's not just saying the neoprene is more expensive because you've got neoprene lining, even the process they do for the lamination, uh, the stitching, the type of stitching, like you said, between flat lock, blind stitch, overlock even. Um, the, the process, it takes longer to do blind stitching. The manufacturers, uh, some cost more than others because some are better quality than others. You've got, I mean, there's actually an awful lot of factors that come into it once you actually start to look at the business and it goes a bit away from the actual wetsuit design, but even to the point of what um, the country of origin, you know, if you bring stuff in from Cambodia, it's a lower tariff than if you bring it in from Thailand or China, for example. And that might make the difference of five or six percent at your landed cost, but that's potentially going to make the difference of, you know, could be 10, 15, 20 pounds once you get to retail price. So th 
I'd like to say the answer is the quality of the neoprene. Majority of it is quality of neoprene. Um, Labour costs are an, a factor as well. So if you go to a good manufacturer, it's going to cost you more. The processes take a bit longer. That's going to cost you more. The R&D obviously becomes an incremental cost in the product. So if you're reproducing numerous, um, you know, quite thin, easy, fairly low-grade neoprene flat-knot wetsuits for the summer, you're just, you know, churning them out. That's that the only, your only cost is material and process. Whereas if you're trying to develop, you said Patagonia, so Patagonia doing a lot obviously on sustainability, they are investing money into cleaner solutions, cleaner processes, what have you. That will have to be paid back one way or another. So it just becomes an incremental piece in their margin that gets added onto the end price at the end of the day. So there's a number of things. Um, it's not just materials. It is a very complex science, uh, wetsuit design. But... Um, but that said, it is always the case that you get what you pay for. So a cheap wetsuit is going to be low-grade neoprene, simple stitching, and a high-end wetsuit, assuming you do your research properly and you're not just paying for um, you know, marketing. But I think for the most part, the good brands make very good wetsuits. Then, yeah, you're going to get better materials, better stitching, better sealing, better fit, blah, blah, blah. So forgive my ignorance a little bit, but does the UK produce neoprene and... If so, why is it not widely used, or is it widely used? As in the raw material of neoprene? As in the raw material of neoprene to make wetsuits and, and items like that. You know, there's, there's a, like Robies that um, kite surface use as well that, that I've seen out on the market. Um, you know, as a country, do we produce something like that? As far as I'm aware, we don't produce any neoprene, and if we do, not to the grade that you'd use in wetsuits. No, I think all the, because obviously there are people making suits in the UK, I think they ship in all the, all the neoprene. Yeah. Mostly Class- from Japan. Classic British it. stuff though, isn't it? Import, import, limited export, except for when you've made it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's a tricky one. There is an art, I mean, and this comes up with surfboards a lot and it's kind of its own can of worms in itself, but there is, as well as the cost factor, there is, there are a lot of things that make producing in the Far East, particularly with wetsuits and a lot of other products, that make sense. So, for example, where we make our wetsuits, they blow the neoprene nearby, they make the lining nearby, they have the trained workforce. You haven't got that in the UK. Like you say, we don't make neoprene in the UK. So even if you wanted to make ne- wetsuits in the UK, you, you can do it, but you can't do it on scale. So, it, they, yes, all the, the manufacturing went offshore back in the day to make it cheaper, but it's since developed this perfect little like microcosm of you know wetsuit manufacturing or surfboard manufacturing or what have you, and so they've kind of got everything there. They've got the innovation. They they've got um, like I say the manufacturers next to the neoprene maker, so they're they're talking to each other on a daily basis and they're developing new neoprenes, this that and the other. You know, so there's so many partnerships that work because they're all located side by side that actually there's an argument to be made for producing them there and even with the shipping you're, you're shipping a finished product so rather than shipping sheet neoprene and then cutting off the waste and binning the waste you're only shipping a finished product so actually your footprint on shipping becomes kind of relative so yeah it's again it's never a simple answer yeah it's kind of like a bottomless like chasm of a hole isn't it you know there's so many different elements that go into lots of different things and i think one thing from my perspective i mean i'm, I'm quite sort of um living in my own little bubble where I don't really know much about retail. I don't understand, you know, where the importation for building surfboards or, 
you know wetsuit r- really comes from and then when you put it down into layman's terms like you have it, mm. it kind of it kind of makes sense i mean let's be honest where in this island that's getting more and more heavily populated are we going to find a big enough factory to pump out neoprene sheets to you know companies like tiki and you know what you're doing with dakine and all those sort of places mm. where are we going to find the space and the real estate to pump out mass production like that and does it make sense because you're only really going to be serving the uk market it's unlikely that you're going to start shipping you know to the rest of the world and if you do you've kind of ruined your business model because actually if you're shipping to the rest of the world you're better off doing that from a a main manufacturing and shipping hub you know shanghai is designed to and guangdong and shenzhen and all these other chinese ports they do a really good job of shipping because they get so many containers through a day you start trying to do that out of southampton you're going to have problems so yeah the whole industry the whole the whole process is is it's it's there's a reason what am i trying to say although although there's always ways that you could do other things and you're you know you could talk about local manufacturing shop and local and all that kind of stuff um if wetsuit manufacturing has been done for quite a while and it it because it's a commercial product people will always try and gain an advantage. And that might be through innovation in material. It might be through um, refining a process, simplifying a process, uh, making it more efficient and therefore more cost-effective. Not necessarily cheaper, but more cost-effective, which is what they do in China, and they do it very well. Not just China, um, Thailand, Cambodia, uh, Taiwan, all of these places that are great manufacturing centers. So they are are brilliant at what they do. I I think that gets overlooked a little bit when people talk about, you know, manufacturing in the Far East. They are really, really good at what they do. And that's why they make incredible wetsuits. I'm not saying we couldn't do that in the UK, but we wouldn't be able to do it in the way that they do it because they are set up for this kind of global manufacture of stuff. And we're not. You uh, worked for Tiki between 2003 and 2013, and then you decided to go freelance as a designer. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Did you feel like you'd outgrown the job itself in Tiki or did you just want a different direction? Um, it was a mixture of things. I Certainly I did, uh, without wanting to to, um, to say that things had stagnated with the work I was doing, I, it was the case that, obviously, as I said, I started at Tiki as the, the main designer, the only designer, effectively, and... Um, and 10 years later, I was still in the same role. So I was doing very much the same job as I had when I started. Although the requirements changed a little bit because online had become a bigger f- feature and social media and so on. So there was, an, there was a need for them to have somebody else doing that work, which I it wasn't really my field. So they were looking to bring in other people to do that. And, and it made sense. It made sense for me. It made sense for them that I kind of, I suppose, specialized a little bit did the bits that I did well exclusively and somebody else did the other work and at the same time I had um, I'd worked with talk for about 18 months before that which I'd been you know sort of a side hustle at the time really because it was very much a startup in those days and that was taking up more and more of my time and so it made sense to me to split my time more evenly and so do a bit less for Tiki and do a bit more for talk and freelance was the you know, the obvious way to go. So when you went freelance, you mentioned that you started to design the Tiki Zephyr suits, which I'm going to blow some smoke right up your ass now, is one of my favourite wetsuits and I've worn them probably. So I met Stu back in 2013, 
2013. So I've been wearing them since then, and they've they've just been my best suit. I used to wear like XLs mm-hmm. um, when the chest zips um, started to come in. Yeah, um, has been more more of a fashionable wetsuit. Uh, I mean, they were retailing at something ridiculous, like three, four hundred quid. They were a good suit, but mm. the lining for me kept falling out on the inside, okay. and it was yeah, it was a pain in the ass. And I really didn't, I really didn't like that aspect of it. But then when I started wearing the suits that I got from Stu, I was like, why have I not been wearing these? Yeah. Why don't I know about these? Um, and it's a British brand as well. Mm. They are they are excellent suits. Tiki make great products. In fairness, yeah, the Zephyr we'd worked on. We started the Zephyr. It was before I I went freelance. We we'd been working on the Zephyr. That was I think it was about two thousand and ten. We started on that, and that was actually when Tiki went back to Shaco, the manufacturer Shaco, who make um, the majority of the really good quality wetsuits. They'd had a they'd switched manufacturers at some point, and and for one reason or another, it wasn't the best move, and so they'd obviously gone back to Shaco for it's mainly quality but also innovation shaco the people who do liquid seal almost all the liquid seal stuff comes out of shaco and um so we went back to shaco and we went back and we thought right we're going to do a new high-end suit we've got the opportunities now like i was saying earlier you know to some extent you can be limited by manufacturers or or enhanced by them and we hadn't been able to do liquid seal and get the really good stretch materials before our previous manufacturer so moving back to shaco gave us that opportunity and around about the same sort of time, we signed Andrew Cotton to ride Tiki, ride for Tiki, wear Tiki wetsuits. And it all kind of, um, yeah, came together. And, and so we, Stu had a big part in it. Stu kind of came from repping Rip Curl. And he sort of, like you say, saw that there was a, a real strength at Tiki with the knowledge and the history and all, all that stuff. And thought, you know, we should be doing a, a suit that the brand can be proud of. And so that's what we set about doing. So we made a suit that we knew that Cotty would be able to wear at Nazare and a suit that we'd want to wear, to be honest. I want to touch on a little bit of a conversation we had before we turned the microphones on about right. how being in North Devon is one of them, I've surfed here since I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that many times on this podcast. But what I've started to learn over doing these podcasts with with guys like Dan Maker and, and John Jameson and, and Stu Pointer, who you're talking about there, who works, works for Tiki, um, is that the surfing community or the manufacturing side of it, the wholesale, basically the, the, the surfing um, kind of umbrella that surrounds this country is really round North Devon, round here. And where a lot of people would associate as the the pinnacle hub of surfing would be like down in Cornwall with, with, in the Newquay area. Yeah, there are shops, shops and, and shapers and stuff down there, but it just appears that everything that is produced and manufactured and pushed out and is, and is a really good, solid British brand comes from this really small little villaged area in North Devon. Uh yeah, I mean, I don't want to upset any Cornish friends, but um, I don't know. I, I don't have so much. I, I've always been based up here, so I I haven't ventured down into Cornwall all that much, and I haven't worked with many of the brands based down there. I mean, obviously, there are there are plenty of brands based down there. Everyone will know the names of them. But it is, I would say it's true that there is a quite unusually dense population of 
brands and industry in the Vaughan area for, for such a small place. You know, when we're talking about Cornwall, maybe talking about a much bigger area and obviously Newquay's a hub, but then you've got quite a few places up and down the coast. Whereas with North Devon, it's sort of almost exclusively Braunton. Um, and but you've got the reach Cornwall. as well, though, because, you know, the, I mean, for, I'm going to use the example of Decline, which will come out, I've said we'll talk about a little bit later. The reach that that has, mm. Salt Rock mm. is based up here as well. Yeah. You know, dry robe. Dry robe. They're all pinnacle industrial brands that are based in this country that, you know, are, are kind of slowly putting their spider webs further abroad into Europe and, and, and to the rest of the world. And I think, like you just pointed out there, from being a really small surfing community that has that reach, it's quite impressive. It's certainly unusual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or it feels like it's unusual. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just because surfing is quite a sort of small network really at the end of the day and I think like we said like you said we had this conversation before we started recording but if you go to other parts of the world you know you go to the Gold Coast in Australia and there's 70% of the main brands of the world based there or you go to Oceanside or you go to I don't know wherever you are so you want to mention these these real hubs of surfing around the world um it's just, yeah, in, in your mind, you, you imagine them quite different to this little modest place in Devon, little Braunton village. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't really have an answer for it. It's um, maybe maybe industry sort of attracts industry and it draws people and that's what kind of creates the the hub that becomes, you know, industrial centres. I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I wouldn't like to guess. So here's a question that I kind of wanted to know a couple of answers about it. Now we're talking about industry a little bit is that Tiki is a brand and I know you don't work for them. You've done some work for them um, at the moment is in my opinion, a really, a really good solid brand, but from an outsider looking in, it it struggles with its expansion. We're talking about reach. I'll use the example of salt rock their reach is quite wide you know people from the midlands from scotland you know where they where their products like we were talking about the, the 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 consumer side of what tiki produce is really good but i think they're missing something from the point that i don't know whether it's advertising whether it's a push from the media side that they're kind of missing a trick where they could be really big but I don't know why they're not trying to push that. I mean, have you got a thought on that? Not really. I mean, I, well, I do and I don't. I've, I've worked there for a long time, so I know a lot about it. And, I, and I've, yeah, you've got to say, it's if if it's frustrating because if only it, their story could be told properly. They are. I don't think many people realise what Tiki re- it really is. You know, you obviously you hear about all the the brands all over the world that we were the first to do this and we were the first to do that or O'Neill have been in the game longest and, and so on and so on and there are, you know, it's all great stuff it's really nice that it exists but Tiki's story is a bit doesn't really get told enough and it's a real shame I don't think many people know about it, you know the, the same two guys running it now who started it back in, who knows when mid-60s I want to say and, you know, like Dave the reason, one of the reasons why Dave got into so they had the licences for Gordon and Smith uh, Weber, one B, Dewey Weber, and Bing, back in the early seventies, I think, when they were producing these lovely sort of single fin S decks and things, and 
Dave, the story goes along the lines of, I don't know exactly, but Dave, so one of the two directors, there's Tim and Dave who started it back then. Dave went off to cut to America, spent some time working on a farm, I believe, in the Midwest somewhere, had been there when the Vietnam War was going on and got drafted. And having only been there for a certain amount of time, I think he was eligible to be drafted, but thought, yeah, no way, I'm not doing that. That's not for me. Jumped on a Greyhound bus, went to California, got off at Redondo Beach, didn't know where to go. Bumped into somebody in a bus station, I think. Uh, I don't know the story exactly. Turned out to be Larry Gordon from Gordon Smith. The guy said, yeah, come and stay with me. I'll, I'll sort of put you up for a bit. You can come surfing with us. You know, got to know the guys. This is all back in the sort of late 60s, early 70s. This is like the big Wednesday movie stuff, you know? This is the real deal. And then as, as a result of that, they kind of picked up the license. I hope I'm telling the story right because I don't want to do them any justice. But they, they picked up the licenses and then they kind of came back here and started producing boards and that grew and grew and they were blowing blanks and supplying the whole of Europe. And, and then they got into wetsuits and again, they were producing thousands out of the factory in Velator and um, yeah, Velator and Bronson, thousands of wetsuits. You know, huge team, like a proper wetsuit manufacturer, exporting to Europe. Huge in Germany, huge in Europe, in um, the Netherlands, and um, and it's all there. You know, and and they're still there. Those are still the guys running it. They haven't sold out. They haven't floated it on the stock market. They haven't sold out to shareholders. They're genuinely those two guys in the original building with the resin on the floor and the sewing machines upstairs. And like I say, Rob who worked there at the time with that incredible knowledge and understanding of what it takes to make a wet, genuinely make a wetsuit, not just design pictures on the computer like I do. And, um, and it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible part of British surfing, but I think an awful lot of people don't know about it. So to come back to your question, um, sort of why, why aren't they bigger? Why isn't that more known about? I think there's a lot of things to it. I think it's something of a hindrance that they have such a history to some extent. I think if you start a brand right now, you'd have a very clear purpose. You think, this is what I want to say with my brand. This is what I do with my brand. This is how I want to fit my brand with the market of the moment. If you've been around for, must be 50 years plus now, you've, you've kind of been in a lot of different things at different times. And it's quite hard to keep that um, versatility to keep kind of, um, keep fresh, keep new, keep doing new products, keep doing new brand image, keep top of the pile because there's always the new brands coming along with the new messages and the new products and the new this, that and the other who are trying to chip away at what you're doing. And so that is a, is a sort of a constant struggle, I think. And, and then being able to sustain that and market yourself and yeah, just keep, keep that kind of um, sort of speed and energy and innovation and, and sort of, um, I don't know, it's quite hard to put your finger on really, but with that kind of history and legacy and product catalog and history with all the shops and, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot to the place and um, to try and refine it and make it into a lean sort of 21st century brand, particularly with the sort of digital influence um, I think it's just a, a big undertaking that would be very hard to do. It certainly could be done. And I mean, there's, it's, got, it's just got more potential than anything I can think of, really, that brand. But it's, um, it's a pretty massive undertaking. And you can see why it's kind of not happened yet, I would say, because I think it's always could, could be around the corner. Who knows? It just takes the right person with the right amount of money. It's interesting you say that the tiki story doesn't really get told i have approached him i think it was last year 
um, to talk to him on the podcast mm. as well to get his point of view and the actual grassroots story, which would be, I think, would be really interesting because I've been wearing tiki kit since I started surfing. You know, my family, we've been coming on holiday here since I was like in my early teens. So yeah. it's almost on par with, I would say, like Fat Willies or something like that because the brand has been going for so long. And it, But the good thing and the really cool thing about it is it's still here and it's still going and it and it's still pushing product out which if you look back in the history of industry within the UK there are lots of companies that have folded within the last 50 years during that time and surfing is a really niche industry to be in it's not like top man or something like that a mainstream high street shop it is specifically niche to surfing or water sports which if you're not really interested in you're probably not going to buy anything from so yeah I could really imagine it's quite hard to put out there and and to gain that traction with people too yeah and that was one of the motivations behind sponsoring Cotty as well because you do kind of need it's all like you say if you're in surfing you maybe have heard of it and and if when you're sponsoring team riders and so on you can sponsor really good surfers but the wider public aren't going to pick up on that. They're not going to take so much notice of that. So that was that was one of the motivations behind Cotty is he's definitely, you know, he's on Newsnight and all the rest of it when he gets a mega wave and on the front page of the Daily Mirror or whatever, you know, for good or worse. So, yeah, that was that was the idea of making that more mainstream, but or certainly not not so much mainstream, but more more just making more people aware of it, getting people to see it. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's... Uh, it's it's a shame it's not more well known about the story but how you'd go about doing it i'm not sure that's why i don't do marketing that's get, why the, I do get the story told and swing <laughs> it from the rafters that's what you need to do get it get it launched out there yeah that's what i think let's move on a little bit so uh, we've talked about tiki and you've gone freelance you're also involved with talk so you threw me the start out with a little bit of a profile you gave to me saying that Talk Surfboards is now the fourth largest surfboard brand in the world and you are one of the creative directors for it. So just explain a little bit about how that came came to you being in that position in the first place. Yeah, and just to, to qualify that, it's around about the fourth biggest by like number of board sales. No, it is. He, he told me it was it's and that's exactly, it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, obviously we know kind of one and two, uh, I think everyone knows who one and two are in the world and then sort of three, four and five are kind of contested by, you know, I think everyone knows who sort of three, four and five are going to be fought out by. We don't know exactly what how many boards everyone sells, but we've got a pretty good idea and we know we're sort of in the in the sort of the back running top five anyway um so i started working with talk the the reason it came about is talks owned by seven shareholders who are the distributors around the world so these guys had been involved uh, independently with other uh, other brands and and when um various things happened with the other brands and the, the companies they were dealing with they collaborated and said look guys we need to get together we're all we all want the same thing and we've all got the same businesses and we're all around the world we could get together form this alliance and create our own brand and so that's what happened and Tiki was one of those companies so this was Tim primarily Um, and so the seven guys got together and they 
developed a completely new process for making boards. They found a new factory um, that previously had made only snowboards, very, very good snowboards, but they hadn't made uh, surfboards. And they created a whole new product range and in a complete different way with a new, it's, I mean, it's a great business model, really, if anyone wanted to kind of, if anyone really cared. I don't know how many people <laughs> care about distribution <laughs> models of surfboards, probably not very many, but it is a great model. And um, so I got involved because I was working at Tiki at the time and I had been, I'd been to a number of kind of meetings with the other brands that they've been involved with. So I kind of knew the guys behind it and obviously they knew me through Tiki. And so they needed a designer. They had had a designer previously who designed the logo, so I can't claim credit for the logo. But they, so they had a logo and that was it. And they said, can you do the first range of board graphics? So, I mean, it started super small. I, I literally did a sheet of, you know, half a dozen graphics, logo positions, colors, stripes, pin lines, whatever, fades. And, and we kind of worked on it. We tweaked it a little bit, produced the first batch of boards. And then, of course, we needed the sales sheets. So that all got produced. And then we needed a website that got produced the first year. So it's kind of, you know, a bit of work there. And then obviously the next year, as these things happen, it kind of came around. They're like, right, we're going to add a range. We're going to add some colors. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And so it kind of just grew very naturally from just a few bits of board design or board artwork design. I don't like to claim the board design, the shapes. And, and just grew and grew. And as the brand just did really well as they have done and are still doing um, I agree with it and it became as a, you know as you touched on I, I went freelance a couple of years into the into working with talk partly because it was becoming a bigger part of my work and um, and it's got bigger and bigger and the, the the team I mean you described me as creative director and I know that's because that's what I put in the email and I, and I wouldn't normally call myself creative director that always seems a bit sort of um, I don't know, sort of showy and it's not like I've got a business card with creative director written on it, but essentially, I mean, essentially that's what the job is. So the, the structure is, the actual team is tiny. There's uh, myself, there's the brand manager, general manager, um, boss man, who's Sebastian over in Portugal. He does all the shapes, the manufacturing, the logistics, the sampling, the ordering, the, the everything on that side. Um, we've got a guy who works in the factory on um, production management, quality control, uh, innovation on sort of you know materials and what have you, and that's about it. And then there's the seven distributors who are all shareholders, and we all collaborate on, you know, what products we do and what colours we do, and so on and so on. And then there's a number of other dealers around the world who cover the other countries that we haven't got covered by our shareholder distributors. So, from that point of view, I oversee and do pretty much the entire creative of the entire brand on a you know for the for the brand globally not necessarily for each territory because each distributor can do their own artwork and adverts and whatever but um so essentially it's creative director role but it's not that i you know swagger about and claim that um i just do the design that needs doing so you don't wear a big cap with creative director smoking the big cuban cigar well, I, I can't wear the cap and the t-shirt at the same time ah, it, see. it's yeah, not so yeah. much of a look so when i've got the creative director t-shirt <laughs> on i try not to wear the hat at the same time I think I've had a couple of talk boards and they've been really, really good. Um, I had a, uh, a performance fish and what was the other one I had? I can't remember now. But it was a really good board. I had it for like, you know, three or four years. Mm -hmm. And I think looking into, again, we've been talking about brands for the last 45 minutes. What's really good about the brand and unique, I think, is that it has something for 
the real basic beginner is your very startup packages boards all the way up to peak performance short boards that you can use in double overhead java or somewhere like that which i think is is quite unique because i don't think or i don't think that there are that many brands out there that have that versatility within within a range of products that they push out it's it's quite a unique selling point if i'm perfectly honest it is it's not an easy selling point um it's it's hard to be to have your bread and butter board being um perceived uh, I mean, essentially, you know, the, the shapes and the, the range is very suited to kind of your sort of upper beginner, intermediate level surfer. And because that's where the, most of the volume of the boards get sold, that is generally what people feel or think about as the brand, which is, you know, fine because that's what the boards are, that's what they're designed for, and they're very good at being those those products. But it does make it trickier when you then try and move into the more performance end of the market it's it's purely an image thing at the end of the day it comes down to marketing credibility because the product's all there that's unquestionable and when you look at the the prepreg technology that we're starting to introduce for talk which is it's uh, uh, unfortunately a lot of these terms get banded around a lot you know cutting edge and next level and all that kind of thing but it prepreg is genuinely next level as far as composites go so if you look at any other composite industry whether it's america's cup you know the yachts they do or formula one or, or anything like that Prepreg is the top end of the composites industry, and and we've, as far as I'm aware, we're the only company that have worked out how to produce an, an EPS epoxy prepreg board. I think there's a carbon fiber um, prepreg board out there. I think it's, I think Avise might be doing prepregs, which they blow with a bladder, so it's actually a hollow board. Whereas we've got the uh, much more conventional, what you're used to, like kind of an EPS blank with an epoxy and glass layup, but Prepreg, so way more advanced, way more controllable, way cleaner, way everything better than a sort of a standard vacuum bag DPS epoxy or molded. What have you found that have been the most challenging points of trying to develop the brand and, and grow it? Because without sounding, how can I, how can I word it, uh, negative, a lot of people, including myself, have kind of branded it as being you know pop-out boards which you know you could argue is a negative and a positive because you're mass producing things like that how have you guys been able to develop and manage that yeah no it's a completely fair point and people do um think of them as pop-outs and i mean i talk about them as pop-outs from time to time because it's an easy term to use um it's slightly wrong because pop-outs was the plastic molded from back in the day but I don't want to be pedantic about oh, it. semantics. <laughs> but, um, of course, yeah, and that is a quite a fine line to tread between between um, uh, partly being perceived as a pop-out brand and then partly kind of producing a, quality, uh, a product that isn't then, that isn't a pop-out, effectively, um, because there are plenty of people that are. It's, it's a shame. We do get tarred a bit with the brush of, um, you know, just sort of Chinese boards, and there are a lot. There's a lot of junk that comes out of China in terms of surfboards there's a lot of really good quality stuff that comes out of China and actually it's a bit unfair to say China as well because um, you're talking about the whole Far East really the the talks the majority of them actually get made in Taiwan and if you go to Taiwan you go to the factory it's incredible it's immaculate it's the, and the, the machinery that gets used to mould the boards you know you're talking about 30 grand for a tooling per model so you've got two toolings one's blowing the foam one's doing the press moulding by actual cloth heated uh, we pour the resin in and we close the block and we heat it 60 degrees to get the 
um, perfect sort of resin distribution. I'm slightly going off track here, but to say, I mean, obviously, like you say, it's easy to call them pop-outs. It's, it's a little bit unfair to call them pop-outs because they are extremely advanced um, composite products. I think to answer the question, what we've always done is focus on the product and like you know i mean i started to go off then talking about the specifics of it there is so much incredible engineering that goes into the boards not just ours as it is you know i would say a lot of the top end eps epoxy boards um get unfairly written off as being you know whatever plastic or what have you chinese but there's a lot of exceptionally good product out there if you if you look at it objectively and take away all the marketing so we've always We've always focused on the product and we kind of try and let the product do the talking. Um, present it nicely, get a really good distribution model, get the shops talking about it. Um, once you get a shop guy using the board, like you said, you know, the boards you've had, you loved. So as soon as you get a shop guy in the same position, they use the board, they love it, they're going to encourage other people to use it. We don't go after the, you know, QS or CT surfers. We don't try and um, get adverts in StabMag because i mean obviously that would be nice if we did it's not so much that we decided not to we just that's not the way we've gone at it um we just really try and make the best product that we can and let the rest follow really i definitely agree with the way that you're saying it's it's perceived i think putting something across that also and this is going to sound i don't know a negative and a positive is creating a website because everything is online and everything's visual through social media these days. Having something that is visually nice to look at where you've got these edited videos. I know a lot of the board testing goes in the Maldives, doesn't it? So having these videos that are part of the product description of whatever board it is with your dims and you know what it's supposed to do, what wave height it goes in. If you make something that's aesthetically nice as well, along with the board reviews, because people do research online these days, it can be also quite a good swaying point. Whereas if you've got a real clunky website that you're going onto and you get lost in translation with it, like a lot of them are out there, Mm. that can also be a negative too. So hats off to you, the talk site and all the production and the media model for that is a selling point and probably one of the reasons why I bought a talk board. Oh, that's good to know. As well as Stu telling me, talk boards are ace. Yeah, 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 fair <laughs> enough. Well, no, that's true. I mean, that's exactly it. It's word of mouth and then it's presentation of the brand. And so the word of mouth coming from the shop guys or referral from friends, of course. And then, yeah, presentation of the brand. We, we, do, we do do, a, we put a lot of energy into it. We put a fair bit of money into it. Um, but I think the the word of mouth thing is absolutely vital, and like I say, that's I think that's where we've always said focus on the product, and the rest will follow. Because if somebody has a good experience with the product, then you know that's that old adage, isn't it? They'll tell tell however many people, and yeah, the word of mouth statistics. I think that's the game plan. Which moves me on to the conversation that's been plucking at me for a while now. So when Dan Maker, who is one of the owners of uh, Green Over Sports mentioned that you were you know one of the innovators and designers of the new Dekine wetsuit so if anybody doesn't know Dekine are one of the biggest I would say extreme sports brands because they don't just focus on surfing they do snowboard skis clothing that they've got lines of range from from all different aspects of the extreme sports world but you were one of the innovators and got asked to design 
a wetsuit for them. Can you just talk a little bit about that and from the very beginning and how it came to you to, to look at it? So from the very beginning, it's, I mean, it's not a long story. Dan, I knew Dan through Stu and I, well, I mean, I suppose if I go back a little earlier to give some context, but when I was at Tiki, one of the, one of the products that, one of the wetsuits that we did was the ADV, which is a kind of like a co-steering adventure wetsuit, surf school, surf hire wetsuit. And we'd worked on that for about eight or nine years and we'd got it absolutely, I wouldn't like to say bomb proof, but as strong as it could be. Um, part, partly because, well, and obviously it was designed to, to do that, but one of the services that Tiki offer is a repair service. So you get all the wetsuits from all the different brands coming back. And as well as that, all the ADV fleets that go out to customers, one of the selling points was that if they did get any rips and tears and, you know, but zips bursting or whatever, that they could uh, get them repaired at the end of the year and they get a second season out of them or even a third or a fourth season, ideally. So we'd have thousands of wetsuits, not necessarily ours, all brands, coming back, not coming back, coming in each year and you'd see you'd see where suits went. So from, I don't want to say any brands, but you'd see, uh, you know, types of seams or position of panels or, um, you know, zips. You'd, you basically saw all the flaws in all of the wetsuits. And... And so we worked on this suit, worked on it, worked on it, worked on it, and got it to a really quite a, an impressive position. And it's funny because it's another one of these products like, you know, you talk about pop-outs and surfboards and you, no one gets too excited about them. You talk about uh, a rental wetsuit and no one gets too excited about that either. But actually the work and the innovation that went into that wetsuit is just as good and just as um, extensive as any of the higher-end stuff. But armed with that knowledge... I'd kind of started looking at, well, I suppose on with that knowledge and coupled with the fact that I'd seen in the sort of 10, 15 years that I'd been working on suits at Tiki, this like mad arms race towards flexibility in wetsuits, which was definitely a requirement because I'd been wearing suits for 20 years. Well, by now, 20, 30, I don't know, don't want to guess, like let's say 30 <laughs> years. And, um, and then when I started wet, wearing wetsuits, they were horrible. They were like wearing cardboard. So yeah, there was a super big requirement for stretchy wetsuits but we got to a point where wetsuits were stretchy enough and then they carried on getting more stretchy and they got to a point where they were so stretchy they just they didn't last they didn't fit right they it just went a bit too mad so with that in mind and with this kind of understanding and knowledge of you know where suits fail and durability factors of them i i sort of had this um idea in my head of a you know kind of just combining the two and making durability much more of of the factor so that's kind of as a as a bit of background that I brought with me and um so I'd got to the point where I'd kind of moved on from Tiki and I I knew Dan through Stu and I'd got wind that he was speaking to Dekine about this wetsuit category and this had been going on for quite a while and and we'd actually met and had a few chats about it and I talked about you know this kind of durability thing and we it was very clear that we both had the same sort of idea in mind and I think as well, like you say, with Dekine having a reputation, you know, across the industry, and they do bike and they do snow, and, and they've got a really, really strong um, brand image, but also customer following um, based on this idea of durability and like really well-made product, really hard wearing. And anyone I speak to who talks about Dekine says, "Oh yeah, I had this, and it was awesome. It lasted me forever," kind of thing. So with this sort of whole thing combined, with our both sort of aspirations for designing more durable products and more, you know, from that point of view, it becomes a more sustainable product because it lasts longer. And and the Dekine sort of steer on on their design principle, um, we'd kind of sort of formulated in our minds what we would see as being this 
what this to come, what it would look like. And then I got a call from Dan kind of out of the blue uh, sometime later. And um, he said, I've got a call with the guys from Marquee. So this is the parent company who owned the Dukine brand. Got a call with Marquee and they want us to um, show them the wetsuit proposal. And I was like, we haven't got a wetsuit proposal. And he said, uh, yeah, no, we need to do one. <laughs> this is, and the call's on Thursday sort of thing. You know, it's like two days time. So we sort of had this incredibly sort of mad, quick, like chucking down on paper, you know, all, all the ideas that we've been talking about with all the durability and we, we wrote some nice copy, you know, recalibrating the wetsuit design and all this sort of stuff. And we presented it to the guys and I think he was pretty far down the, the route of being granted the, the license, but I think um, he just felt like it would be nice for them to get a bit of the technical input side from my, from me. So I joined him on that call and we spoke to the guys and shortly after, not, not shortly after as in as a result of that call, but shortly after he was given the license and that was it. It was like, right, now you've got a you've got to go and build a suit that's worthy of having the Dakine name on it. And it's kind of like it's one of those moments when you think, oh, what have I got myself in for? Like this is kind of a this is a big deal now. I think one of the key points that is missing from this is that Dakine didn't have a range of wetsuits either, did they? They didn't at the time. No, they had a couple of neoprene items like jackets. Um, that's about it, really. A couple of jackets and a short. They had produced a sample suit in-house, which for one reason or another they hadn't gone ahead with. But yeah, at the time they didn't do a, a complete wetsuit a full suit let's say a full-size wetsuit they just did a jacket and they didn't really have any extensive neoprene range at all so when you get this phone call and they're basically saying yeah we're going to go ahead with it what are the elements i mean i know we talked extensively at the start about stitching the materials how did you combine the robust tiki adv mm-hmm. to producing um a high-end but affordable suit that is going to last as well because I think that's kind of what you're getting out by talking about all of this that is definitely the question yeah because if it was that easy everyone would do it and and the, the thing with wetsuits you've always got this um, sort of balancing between sort of stretch and durability because generally or, or I mean for that matter you've got stretch versus warmth because if you want it warmer you make it thicker if you want it stretchy, you make it thinner um, stretch against durability because if you know you make it thinner you make it less strong you make it more durable you make it less stretchy so there's always these kind of offsets going on um, so it wasn't I mean we were aware that it wasn't going to be an easy an easy thing to do and and that we were going to have have our work out there's a number of things that we've done um, the f- very first thing and this is the very first thing in any wetsuit design that whether you're doing it for durability or whatever is to get the pattern right and I think this is probably overlooked the most in wetsuit design because or certainly in wetsuits in general I think mainly because in marketing it's a lot easier to market a you know new and improved and exciting lining as a concept because people get that so oh, it's going to make it warmer it's going to make it stretch or it's going to make it whatever it's a lot harder to market as a nice appealing aspect of a wetsuit the pattern but essentially, it's the pattern that makes a good wetsuit. Good wetsuit. You can have an amazingly manufactured suit with a terrible pattern; it's going to be horrible. Or you can have it, you know, the the best wetsuit in the world. If it doesn't fit you right, it's not going to work. Or you can have a relatively basic suit that fits you perfectly and will probably work better than the other one. So, the fit and the pattern was absolutely the main thing. And with the pattern, there's a number of things that you can do with um, obviously your stress points, your three-way uh, junction on your seams. You kind of got stress loading 
um, on seams. So if you can't just, it's you can't really retrofit um, durability into a stretchy wetsuit. You can't just say, well, we'll stick a, a you know a durable panel in there, because all you do is you stress load that seam. So we were fortunate from the point of view we were starting with a completely blank slate, so or clean sheet, whatever the phrase is. So right from the start when we did the pattern, we worked durability into it. Um, some of the things is as simple as on the cuff where we've got a um, a panel which is the stuff you make knee pads out of. Obviously, it's super abrasion resistant, but at the same time, it's also it doesn't have a lot of um, stretch and it's got well, it's got limited elasticity, but it's got very good um, fatigue resistance. So if you want to know, it's a it's a high modulus um, foam. I'm sure you don't care. Um, so we <laughs> use that in the cuff, and by doing that, obviously, you get a very good tight seal, but you don't need to use either a donut cuff, which gives you another seam with a stitch that might fail. You don't need to use a liquid seal band, which might perish. Um, you don't get a suit that bags or, or you know, fatigues at the wrist. So that suit's going to last longer because obviously your cuff's always going to be nice and um, strong for longer. Um, we go belt and braces on the seams. So like we were talking about earlier, we um, on the cyclone, we um, see it, we glue and we seal on the outside and we stitch and we tape on the inside. On the um, on any of the other blind stitch sheets, we double lock stitch the outside. We spot tape on the inside. So we do. We just on all the details, we make sure that it's all taken care of. We put stretch where you need stretch, and in reality, you don't need mega stretch everywhere on the suit. Like from your forearm to your arm to your hand, cannot stretch physically. It can't. You know, your, your arm unless you're elasto man, it doesn't stretch. From your shin down, it doesn't stretch. Your front, to, to a large degree, doesn't really stretch much. Most of the time you're sitting, you're hunched on your board or you're crouched when you're standing on your surfboard. Um, so that doesn't need to be unbelievably stretchy. All the stretch really sort of happens from your neck down your back or diagonally across from your shoulder across to the other side. So it's just a case of kind of tactically placing panels, placing seams in the right way, knowing the places where they fail, like I said. So one of the problems with a blind stitch wetsuit, particularly for cold water, is if you, you can have a perfectly fine wetsuit but if you get pinholes in the seams or one seam junction starts to fail and you start getting cold water in the suit, that's effectively redundant. It doesn't matter if it's not worn through on the knees or the neck still feels nice and tight. Just that one little seam fail will make that suit, you don't want to use it in the middle of winter if it's letting water in. So you've got to kind of keep an eye on on the real micro details as well as the macro stuff like the big knee pads and the i don't know whatever else other factors we've got a, like a particularly big neck, neck opening so you're not overstressing the reinforcement areas there and you know there's loads loads and loads of little details loads of big details but it's the little details i think that make the suits last what made you go along the lines of having the stepping wetsuit without a zip so it's a zip free wetsuit isn't it uh, it's uh, better yeah, it's zip free. It's better. We do do a chest zip now because people ask for it. And yeah. At the end of the day, we've got to sell wetsuits, but it's better. Simple as that. Um, it's the, there's a bit of, it's a slow take up on zip free. And I think people are slightly re, sort of look at them and go, well, I'm never going to get to that or that won't last or, or whatever. Um, and I think there was a couple of early ones where, again, this comes back to the stretch thing where the manufacturers thought we're going to have to make these unbelievably stretchy for people to get in and out of. And so then the wetsuits didn't last very long. So I think I've spoken to a few people who had bad experience with zip freeze. So they're, they're sort of a bit of a slow burn. But I remember when I was first designing suits, there was all back zips. There was barely a chest zip on the market. I'm not sure there even was one on the market at the time. And the chest zips came along. And the first sort of two seasons or so, they really didn't get much uptake. And it was kind of like a real slow, again, mainly word of mouth, mainly people you knew using them and then saying, yes, things really good. 
And it did take probably four or five seasons before it started to become accepted. And for the same reasons, people look at them and go, I don't know if I can get into it. Maybe it's because they're a bit stiff or wet seats at the time. But I think with Zip Free, we're going to see the same kind of ado uh, um, adoption within the market. So it will be a slower growth, but it will get there eventually. And I think they will um, take over from Chess Zips in the long run. I mean, I was one of those people. So when Dan, Dan gave me or um, gave me one to trial, yeah, I, I'd never had a zip-free suit before. I'd seen Tiki had, were doing zip-free, mm -hmm. but I was like, you know, I've got this chest zip, awesome. Yeah. Why break what's not broken, you know, or whatever the an analogy is. Um, so when I first tried it, now I'm quite short and stuck Yeah, in. yeah, you're, you're the worst kind of shape but, to get into a chest zip or a zip-free suit. But quite wide. So yeah. when I initially put it on, and yes, it was dry, yeah. I was like, oh my God, like I can see the panels where the hood fits into the shoulder yeah. um, insert. And I'm looking at it going, this is just gonna pop. But I've worn it now through the winter yeah. as bomb proof. Have you tried getting back in a chest zip? Yes, I've also got um, a 4.3 Tiki Zephyr 2. Okay, which, and how, uh, did the ch how did the zip feel on that against your chest, like across there? Because when I get back in a chest zip now, I'm like, what is this? This is so bulky and clunky and really? stiff. Yeah, yeah. I find once you've got used to a zip free, it's really hard to get back into a chest and suddenly you notice it so much more. Well, I think the Tiki Zephyr that I've got is probably about two or three years old, so it's got a bit of flex in it. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> so if I'm honest. But yeah, so I, I did I did notice that. But then, you know, once you've taken it off two or three times and you've got the hang of, you know, how you take it off as well, because yeah. that's a, a, another thing because you're a little bit like, oh, I don't want to, you know, really yeah, pull yeah. it because it's going to snap. Yeah. But it's been through all the trials and tribulations mm. to get to where it is anyway. So, yeah, I, I was kind of sold with it, if I'm perfectly honest. And, yeah, it's, um, I, again, I feel like I'm just blowing smoke up your ass all the time <laughs> here. Carry on, but, um, it's fine. But I had, um, I think, is it is it the Mission, which is the lower end? The, the, yeah, in the, the first, in the winter range, first winter yeah. range that we did, so yeah. I, so I had a Mission and I, I wore that and I think the wind chill was about like minus three or minus four. Right. And uh, yeah, I was a bit cold in that. Okay. I could feel it going through. But then I had the Cyclone mm -hmm. uh, 543 and I had a, a little um, vest with a hood with it too. And I was absolutely sweating buckets in it. Yeah. I was like, I was almost to the point where I was trying to take my wetsuit off in the water to get rid of the two <laughs> mil because I was so hot. Okay, yeah. yeah so yeah. I, and I've never really had that before in mm. a wetsuit which I think goes to show, and if you talk to anybody that does surf and has tried to get hold of these wetsuits, is they've sold out. Uh, you, you can't, well, I'm, I'm talking about three or four weeks ago now. I, I couldn't find a website that you could get these suits from, which mm. goes to show that you know all the stuff that you put into it um, has kind of paid off a little bit, I think. That's nice to hear, because we did put a lot of time as you can imagine. I mean, it was, it was funny. It was a little bit of a daunting prospect, actually, once we'd, like I said, you know, once we'd actually been, got the news that we had the license and then you suddenly go, oh, no, <laughs> we've got to do this now. There's no turning around. We've got to make this happen. It's got to be quite a fulfilling achievement, though, to know that you've developed something for a, such a big brand like that. And it's not just going to be a nationwide mm. piece of equipment that people are going to wear. It's going to be national international global that people are going to be wearing this kit whether it's in you know alaska mm. you know australia 
South Africa, you know, Brazil. Yeah. It, it's going to get worn all over all over the world. I mean, I don't know whether that might have sunk in or not, but it, it's quite, I don't know. It must be a fulfilling prospect to know that. Um, yeah, I haven't really thought about it. And I mean, I, that's not just, I'm not just sort of playing modesty. I, it's kind of, I, I, it hit me a bit with talk when actually I'd go to other parts of the world and I'd see talks and I thought, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's you know, a product I've been involved with and look, at it, it's here now. And I kind of got a little bit used to that now because they're everywhere, which is great. Um, I, yeah, I, it's only when you say it, I think, actually, no, you're right. It's mad. It's, there's ways it's going to be keeping people warm in Alaska. But to some extent, you're always you're always kind of a season ahead anyway. So the stuff that's landing now and going to be going to market in, um, I think, around about now, they're just launching in the States. That's, to me, that's 18 months old because I've, you know, we were developing that back then and I signed off on those samples um, at least six months ago, if not longer, maybe eight months ago. And now we're well and truly into 2023. Sorry, are we into 2023? No, 2022. I get a bit confused because I'm always in so many different development cycles. So we've, um, we're going into sales and samples of 2022. So that's like a whole nother cycle past. And we're starting, that's right, we're starting 23 in the next couple of months, really. So it, it's, you're always, you're always just looking ahead. Like you don't sort of sit back on your laurels and go, well done me, you know, there's people wearing my seats all over the world, aren't I? Great, you just kind of more, what can we do next? How can we make this a little bit better? You get a fair bit of criticism. Um, people have always got something to say about something. So. It is nice to be to hear nice things about the suits. You, you always, you know, being a designer, you've got to be fairly thick-skinned. People always have some sort of um, suggestions, let's say. So you're always taking that on board and absorbing that into the next range. And you're kind of just in it, you know, day to day. You're just you're turning around emails and you're solving problems and you're trying to forecast and plan and analyze and um, yeah, it's just busy. You just you're just doing the job and kind of not really kind of. And to be honest, I'm like the office that we're in here, you know, I'm not on snapper rocks going, oh, look, there's a guy in the kind of wetsuit. Yeah. I'm at my desk in my office and I get to take the dog for a walk and go home. You know, that's kind of that's my day to day. So, um, yeah, I don't really think about it, to be honest. I'm not just being a m- modest idiot. I just crack on. Well, before your head starts swelling up in this office, because I keep <laughs> saying how awesome the stuff is you've made, uh, we're going to tie it up. Cool. And we're going right. to go into a quick fire round. Okay, go on. So the first question is, if you had one surfboard set up for the rest of your life, would it be a single fin, twin fin, thruster finless, or bonzo? What about quad? You must have quad. Quad. <laughs> uh, that's a tricky question. I was at a really nice surf on my quad yesterday. I'll go with that. Your favourite surfer and why? I mean like a week, because it would take that long. <laughs> if I really think, thought about it properly. Um, I'm gonna go with, oh, do I have to nail it down? Do I have to say one? Have a couple if you want. Uh, I've always thought Taylor Knox is, if I could surf like anyone, Taylor Knox, if I could do a cutback like Taylor Knox, I'd be a happy man. Um, to be honest, any of those, any of those guys were just kind of fluid rail work. So like Parco, Taylor Knox, um, Rasta, love watching him surf. Um, so all, like, all the pro surfers then? Pretty much all the guys on the world tour. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I had to narrow it down, yeah, for sure. <laughs> First surf movie you ever watched? Um, I think it might have been Endless Summer 2. That was or, mine? Yeah, I think it might have been. Last one you watched? 
Um, I don't know if it counts, but I watched that. Um, what's the guy's name? It's on Magic Seaweed. He did a, it's like a little two-minute job of when he's at Pavoni's. Uh, William Maliotti is his okay. name, something like that. A highway rider. And the one, I don't know if that counts. It's a little short online snippet. The one before that would have been the Tom Curran one from Mexico last winter. Which what, Free Scrubber? Yes. Yeah. Which is have awesome. you seen the new one? Tom Curran. That would be my favourite surfer. Tom Curran. Have you, have you seen the new one uh, with Mason Ho and... Um, Connor Coffin. I haven't, but get, I want to because Connor Coffin would be on my list. It's as called well. it, it's called in my band. Uh, I have seen that advertised. Yeah, the name put me off. A it's really bit, good. But I haven't seen it. Is it? Okay. Yeah, like watch I've that. watched. I've watched both of those quite religiously. Okay. Yeah. Looking at your your rail technique. Yeah. I could watch Tom. Well, I'm looking at Tom Curran's boards, thinking they're like about five six, but they're about four inches thick. I know it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? With all random bits of foam stuck on them yeah. there and everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Bloke's a legend. Um, the best person to share a lineup with? I, yeah, I just thought of the worst. The first person who came into my head was the worst, but I'm not going to say who that is. Okay, the worst person <laughs> no, to I'm share a lineup No, I'm not going to say that, not at all. I mean, it depends <laughs> if you want to get waves or not, because you wouldn't want to go surfing with this person. Um, it would probably be my, my long-time surfing buddy, Gus, who's was kind of the guy that I've started surfing. I mean, we've been mates since we were, like, teenagers. But we, uh, yeah, we've been, we started surfing together pretty much and we used to just do proper feral van trips and when we were at uni we'd just go and camp out in the middle of winter in a builder's van and, I mean, you know, it's what everyone does, isn't it? And just sort of freeze your nuts off and go through the trials of it. But, um, yeah, definitely Gus. I don't get to surf with him so much anymore, so. So seeing as you're not going to answer the worst person to share a lineup with? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> Phil Bridges, thank you for coming on the podcast with me and talking. No worries, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Beautiful, thank you. And that's it. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and also leave a little review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.